Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these SALT Talks is the same as our goal at our SALT Conference series, which is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to bring you to the first episode of our series on elections, covering election operations, election integrity, and election security, which will be the focus of our conversations today with our guest, a former Department of Homeland Security Secretary, uh, Mr. Michael Chertoff. Uh, and I'm going to read a little bit about uh, Dr. Chertoff's, uh, Mr. Chertoff's bio before I turn it over to our host for today's talk, Elliot Burke. Uh, as Secretary of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security 2005 to 2009, Michael Chertoff led the country in blocking would-be terrorists from crossing our borders or implementing their plans if they were already in the country. He also transformed FEMA into an effective organization following Hurricane Katrina. His greatest successes have earned few headlines because the important news is what didn't happen. At Chertoff Group, Mr. Chertoff provides high-level strategic counsel to corporate and government leaders on a broad range of security issues, from risk identification and prevention to preparedness, response, and recovery. Before heading up the Department of Homeland Security, Mr. Chertoff served as a federal judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit. Earlier, during more than a decade as a federal prosecutor, he investigated and prosecuted cases of political corruption, organized crime, corporate fraud, and terrorism, including the investigation of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Uh, Mr. Chertoff graduated magna cum laude of Harvard from Harvard College in 1975 and from Harvard Law School in 1978. From 1979 to 1980, he served as a clerk to Supreme Court Justice William Brennan, Jr. Hosting today's talk is Elliot Burke, a managing partner of Burke Farah and an expert on uh, everything related to politics, including uh, election law and election operations. So we're very pleased to have Elliot joining us as a first time host on SALT Talks. And with that, I'll turn it over to Elliot for the interview. Great, well, thank you, John. And Secretary Chertoff, thanks so much for joining us today. We launched this series of talks to create a forum to discuss the actual administration of elections, including the role of the federal government. Our hope is these talks will provide a counter to some of the noise and disinformation that has been out there and will help to clarify the federal role in our elections and why the states uh, largely have the discretion to administer the elections, um, but when the federal government does get involved. So Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Sure. Uh, we wanted to talk today about the role <clears throat> DHS has in election administration and oversight. You were there almost at the outset of the creation of the department. Uh, when you took over as secretary, what role did you see uh, the department having uh, in, in our elections and, and how has that changed over time? Well, when I took over, <clears throat> the issue of elections was not a very controversial one, <clears throat> but as with anything that relies to some degree on the internet, uh, we became increasingly focused on the issue of security against hackers or people who might interfere with the electoral process over the internet. Now, the good news, as you pointed out, Elite, is that the um, actual management of voting is very widely distributed. So it would be essentially impossible at scale 
for an adversary to affect all of the different voting places nationally. And the machines themselves that you actually vote on, by and large, are not connected to the internet except very briefly. But we were concerned <clears throat> about the possibility, for example, of voter databases being interfered with, corrupted in some way, or simply shut down. And so to the extent DHS was involved back when I was secretary, it would have been in giving cybersecurity advice to states. But that was still at a very early stage of worrying about this set of problems. And so now that you look back uh, from your time as secretary until today, how do you think that's changed? Well, I think it's changed in a number of respects. First of all, um, there's the concern we had certainly in the run-up to the last election <clears throat> of whether there would be actual terrorist attacks on voting uh, processes, meaning would somebody go and try to disrupt people waiting online to vote in a particular location or to commit an act of violence. And that's really been an issue of domestic extremism and, and the concern about uh, efforts on the part of some extremists to interfere with voting in areas that they would feel would be uh, unfavorable to their preferred candidate. So that's a new consideration that did not exist when I was there. Disinformation, whether mounted by foreign adversaries or domestic actors, was not a real issue when I was at THS. Now is a very, very big issue. And that started in 2016 when the Russians used their online presence to try to affect the way people voted or didn't vote in the election in 2016. And finally, the issue of, again, hacking into databases, um, freezing them, ransomware that might make it difficult to verify who's actually enrolled to vote. I think those are much more salient now. So if we look across the entire horizon of election security, we're concerned with the actual process of in-person voting. We're concerned with disinformation that is used to um, influence or corrupt people's understanding of what's going on. And we're concerned about the possibility of attacks on registration databases that would at a minimum slow up the process of voting and might actually make it very difficult to vote. I remember, you, you, I'm sure you don't remember this, but I was actually counsel to the House Majority Leader when you took over Secretary of Homeland Security was in my uh, responsibility of issues. And I remember you coming in and one of the first things that you were talking about is preparedness. And you're concerned about preparedness for the various uh, matters that, that Homeland Security has jurisdiction over. How do you think we did uh, this last election from a preparedness standpoint? Well, I will say in many ways, it's a good news story. I was concerned that there might be efforts to interfere with voting in particular locations on the run-up to and on election day itself, uh, particularly places you know, which are, to be candid, more heavily democratic and therefore might be viewed by uh, Trump supporters as being hostile. As it turned out, there was very little interference with the actual voting process. It went remarkably smoothly, particularly in light of the fact <clears throat> that the, the uh, virus and the pandemic made people particularly nervous about going to public places where they might get infected. So that was a good news story. Second, there actually was very little actual interference with registration databases or the voting process itself. I'm not aware of any wide scale 
reporting of efforts to either shut down registration databases or interfere with the tabulation. <clears throat> and again, that's a very good news story. In some cases, you had, in many cases, actually, you had paper ballots or paper records of in-person voting as backup, so you could verify and double check and audit to make sure there was no problem with the machines. So that's a good news story. I think, frankly, the biggest problem we had was after the election. It was the contesting of the election results, notwithstanding the fact that I think 60 judges rejected these claims as bogus and really resoundingly rejecting them. And then, of course, the culmination was the infamous insurrection effort on January 6th, which was a, a misguided and obviously unsuccessful try to actually prevent the announcement of the vote in a way that, that was at least a, an effort to interfere with the election result, although candidly it would not have succeeded. Yeah, from this, um, you know, in the lead up, obviously there were, there were comments on both sides uh, leading up to the election about, you know, attempts to steal the election and things like that. Um, and then breaking down, actually, as you said, most what was mostly a good news story in terms of the, the administration of the election. Um, shortly after the election, um, the Office of um, Cybersecurity within the Department of Homeland Security, um, which my understanding is a relatively new office in terms of uh, how it operates, um, issued a couple of statements, uh, ultimately, uh, the latter of which uh, resulted in its head, Chris Krebs, being fired by the president. Um, looking at those statements and what they said, you know, they're, they're kind of remarkable now in hindsight because um, they really did speak to uh, the, uh, the administration and election and what was successful. Uh, the first one dealt with foreign actors and how there was not, um, there was confidence that there was no successful effort to change anybody vote or even um, stop them from voting. Um, there were likely attempts. We've seen that. There certainly were in 2016. Um, we've seen hacking uh, across our government and other departments and agencies. Why do you think these, these attempts have not been successful where they may have been successful in, uh, in actually getting data from other uh, branches or, or other departments of our government? Well, first, let me just to, to, to say not only Chris Krebs, but also Attorney General Barr both said that there was no indication of widespread fraud or problems with the election. This is where, oddly, the, the widely distributed nature of the way we conduct elections actually is a strength. It makes us resilient. Unlike attacking a single target, where if you penetrate it, you might actually affect a, an outcome that would have national scope you would have to enter and hack into 3,500 databases and try to alter results. And that's just not practical from the standpoint of an adversary. So the widely distributed and decentralized way we conduct our elections, although it can be a little frustrating sometimes when you see unevenness in the levels of security, are ultimately a strength in the sense that a national election would be very, very difficult to affect using online hacking or similar tactics. And one of the things that 2000 election that we did was we created the Election Assistance Commission and we um, uh, agency that's not, that does not have any um, 
uh, oversight. You know, it's there to help the states. And we have moved away from uh, electronic machines in favor of paper ballots. Uh, and I think that that's very important. Uh, it goes to this underlying issue of when we talk about voter fraud and voter intimidation as somebody that's been doing this for 25 years, both of those exist um, and they shouldn't be tolerated at any level, but conflating uh, what happens uh, in instant in specific cases and, and then making it into something that's happening on a widespread basis, um, I think is, 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 is a disservice to the American people because it just undermines the integrity of our elections. If, if fraud is going on, intimidation is going on, we need to obviously prosecute and investigate it. Um, and even saying as some that you know, widespread fraud doesn't exist ignores the fact that if it's targeted, that's what matters. But we didn't really see that uh, this time around. And um, you know, I think some of the, the lawsuits coming out of it, that Dominion and, and uh, Smartmatic are or challenging those assertions um, are going to have a self-correcting influence. I'd love to get your thoughts on that too. Well, first of all, I mean, there have been, <coughs> excuse me, individual instances of fraud historically, and as you observe, to be focused <coughs> on local elections because there you actually could have an effect. If you've got, you know, twenty thousand voters voting for a local official, then affecting a couple of thousand might actually have an impact. Ironically, many years ago when I was a prosecutor in New York, I actually prosecuted and convicted a politician for voter fraud with absentee ballots. What he did is he went into a home for people who were mentally disabled. He had a whole bunch of absentee ballots and he basically filled them out and had them sign it and then sent them in and thereby essentially stole their ballots. But it was like 50. So it might have been relevant to his election, but of course it could not have been scaled up nationally. The concern with the, the, a lot of what happened in the both the run-up and the, and the follow-up to the election, attacking the integrity of the process itself, is it really undermines trust in government. Because essentially the argument that was being made is the presidential election is not valid, therefore the result isn't valid. And in those parts of the world, where people are repeatedly told elections can't be trusted and they're not valid, that is usually a prelude to a dictatorship where the strong man says, no, I, what's valid is me and my ability to use force to get control. That is not what this country is about. This is what we have fought against. We fought wars against this. And so seeing our own public officials, some of them undermining confidence is very dismay. But again, on the good news side, the number of state and local officials who resolutely rejected claims of fraud ought to be a heartening sense that fidelity to the Constitution is still something most of our public servants believe in. Yeah, I think that those are those are excellent points. And even going back to the, um, the statement that ultimately got uh, Chris Krebs fired, um, looking back on it, uh, to your point about the federal government does not work in a vacuum here. It's working with state and local and even private partners. Uh, that statement that was became so controversial, at least to the president, uh, was actually a joint statement that included uh, uh, the chairman of the Election Assistance Commission, the Secretary of State's Association, you know, various parties across our federal and state government, as well as private entities. Um, 
Can you talk a little bit about how that office does interface with um, its state partners? Well, so CISA, which is that the office that we're talking about at DHS, is basically Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. And it's what we used to call uh, uh, by a different name, but basically it has the principal DHS responsibility to secure all of our critical infrastructure against terrorist attacks or similar uh, efforts to undermine our, our security. And in 2016, in the run-up to the election, as we began to experience a rise in Russian disinformation, the then Secretary of Homeland Security, Jay Johnson, made the election another one of the critical infrastructure priorities that the agency works with. And of course, the agency deals with the oil and gas sector, uh, transportation, communications. So it's got a broad remit. In the run-up to this election, what that agency did was work with state and local governments to help them secure their infrastructure against an attack. Uh, whether the attack would attempt to affect the voting process or the registration process or the counting process. The idea was to upgrade security across the board and give state and local officials the tools they need to protect themselves against an attack. And I think they were able to do quite a good job with that. And that's got to continue. Yeah, I think, I, I'm not sure if you saw, but there were some critics on the right um, that attacked uh, the statement in the office saying that um, they're advisory in nature only, and they're not really um, in the position to weigh in on those things. And uh, I think it, it, it failed to appreciate what the role of the office is, as you just laid out, is that it is advisory, but it's advisory in the sense that it works with the state partners and state partners also joined in the same conclusion. So ultimately, you know, you've got the validation of the federal, the state, local, and even private uh, parties here. And that's the way our system should work. It's not even, as some critics have said, a federalizing of what is a state responsibility. It's showing federalism and how we, we work together at the federal, state, and local. Correct. Level. It's a partnership. Right. It's a partnership. And that's the way in which uh, DHS works with state and local partners on a whole host of security issues to protect our infrastructure against attacks by terrorists or foreign nations. Um, I mentioned the uh, Dominion Voting Systems lawsuit, and um, I'm sure uh, you saw this video uh, that was going around about uh, somebody walking through how votes could actually be changed during it. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that. Um, or the lawsuits in general, and where do you think they're they're going to end up? Well, I haven't seen the video, but um, I, I'm not aware of any evidence that these machines somehow altered votes or were rigged in some way. And so, I, frankly, I understand why these companies are suing. What they're basically saying is, put your money where your mouth is. If you can prove something, fine. If you can't, you're going to pay us because you've damaged us. And there needs to be accountability. And there were people who made unbelievably irresponsible, made-up accusations, <clears throat> again, which undermine our faith in our government and also, no doubt, injured these businesses. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And uh, I haven't seen, I mean, can you think of a time when retractions at such a significant level have been made by uh, major media outlets. I mean, Fox News, Newsmax, um, 
the American thinker. They've all been forced, I think, uh, to you know, take a look at the statements and retract it for fear of litigation. Do you think that in itself will potentially be self-correcting moving forward? Well, I do think having, um, in, you know, removing impunity from people who deliberately make up nonsense and propagate it is helpful. There should be accountability. And if these um, news media are not able to demonstrate a good faith basis to report what they did, then they ought to own up to that fact and retract it, or they ought to pay a price. Going, uh, speaking of paying a price in terms of the processing of the, um, the insurrection and um, the FBI arresting uh, numerous people involved in it, there's been some debate within uh, the Justice Department about whether to charge people that simply, uh, they may not have been violent, but they may simply have been trespassing in that sense. Um, what are your thoughts on that in terms of, you know, we've never obviously been in a place like this in our history, um, but uh, in terms of the disinformation campaign that led to this, um, to what degree do you think that people should be held responsible? Well, first of all, I mean, anybody who, who broke in, it's not like they merely, you know, wandered into uh, someone else's backyard by mistake. If they broke in, and wandered around, they ought to be held accountable. Now, obviously there are gonna be different charges for different people and the higher priority are those who committed acts of violence, <clears throat> those who stole documents or items from the Capitol and apparently a number did. That's the highest priority and those are the most serious charges. But I do think the incitement issue is a very serious issue. The reality is, first of all, there were people who came deliberately expecting to commit acts of violence. And if you look at what some of them were carrying, I have to say there's a good reason to believe they actually intended to capture and kill members of Congress to interfere with the certification of the votes. That is a very serious crime. Um, really, to me, to me, is essentially almost tantamount to treason. And then even those who just wandered around to disrupt, I think, committed crimes that need to be accounted for. But we also need to look at those who incited. And the language that was used was thinly veiled as an invitation to go to the Capitol and commit mayhem, including physical violence against our elected legislators. And that can't be ignored. And so I would imagine over time, particularly as they develop more and more evidence, uh, there will be cases brought against those who incited this and who inspired it and who argued for it. And one of the ironies of the modern world is when people commit crimes like this, they, they record themselves and they advertise it and they make it easy for law enforcement to find them. You know, I laugh because when I was doing organized crime cases, <clears throat> you know, the government would try to record or wiretap the, the organized crime figures committing crimes and they would go out of their way to try to make it difficult to do. Nowadays, criminals say, look at me, and they post it publicly. So I think we're going to see a lot of cases come out of this, and I think that's what should happen. Yeah, it really, you know, it was prescient how you said that, uh, you know, one of your concerns in the lead up was a version of this. Uh, we just thankfully didn't see it on election day, but uh, it really did come to fruition, the exact reasons you expressed. 
and I think that you know physical violence and acts of domestic terrorism <clears throat> will continue to be an issue in this country for the, the foreseeable future. You know, we've lived through this before. We had Ruby Ridge, we had Waco, and we had the Oklahoma City bombing in the mid nineties. Um, and after Oklahoma City, I think there was a bit of a, a reaction, revulsion against uh, extremism because they saw these, there were kids who were blown up at a daycare center. But unfortunately what sometimes happens is as time passes, people forget <clears throat> how bad these terrorist acts are and they start to rev themselves up with the extremism again. And I just hope that after January 6th, it causes a lot of these folks to take a deep breath and realize that what they did was way, way beyond the line. So where do you think we go from here? Uh, obviously there's gonna be a lot of uh, post-mortem within the departments. Uh, the Election Assistance Commission is already scheduled a slate of hearings to take a look at this, to audit the states. Um, and there's a lot of good stories there too, but in terms of moving forward, in light of what happened, in light of the concerns you have, what do you think we need to do to better prepare ourselves moving forward? Well, I think first of all, we need again to continue to work with state and local officials to shore up their defenses against cyber attacks on databases or things that would interfere with the counting process itself. I also think we need to help them employ more people and uh, get more resources in order to deal, for example, with mail-in ballots, which are a very useful way to vote. I voted with mail-in in the past, um, but you ideally want to have enough people to um, distribute the ballots, to verify them, and then ultimately to count them. And there may even be ways with paper ballots to build in more security using QR codes and some of the modern technology that we have. So I think that's where we need to focus on in terms of moving forward to better secure our election process. That's great. Well, Mike, thanks very much. Uh, I think that's all the time we have today. John, turning back over to you. Yeah, thank you so much, uh, Secretary Chertoff, for joining us for the first session in our series on elections, uh, focused on election security. And thank you so much, Elliot, uh, for moderating the conversation today. Again, our goal with this series is to just get the facts out uh, in the sunlight. You know, I think there's a lot of misinformation about everything ranging from security to how uh, elections are, are operated. So we're looking forward uh, to sharing this episode with our uh, community, as well as sharing the upcoming episodes in this series with Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson. That'll be a great bipartisan discussion uh, from two people on the ground in two key battleground states during the 2020 election, as well as hosting Ben Hobland and Don Palmer from the Election Assistance uh, Commission. So thank you again, everybody, for tuning in today and for Secretary Chertoff for joining us on this first episode of SALT Talks focusing on elections. Yeah. Great. My pleasure. And thanks again, everybody, for joining us. Just a reminder, if you missed any part of this episode of SALT Talks or you want to watch any of our previous episodes, you can find them at salt.org backslash talks backslash archive. And you can sign up for all of our future talks at salt.org backslash talks. Please follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook. And please subscribe to our channel on YouTube if you don't already. And please tell your friends about SALT Talks. We love growing our community. On behalf of the entire SALT team, uh, this is John Darcy signing off for today. We'll see you back here again tomorrow on SALT Talks.